Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. Welcome this morning to Faith. Hey, great to have everybody here. Take your Bibles out. Turn to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. You know, we, we have a tendency. If you've been saved for a while, you read through the Bible, and we just kind of read over it. We don't really see what it's saying. We don't really get in deep, deep into it, and we see everything through our own lens, from our own perspective. We're gonna try to go back and walk in the shoes of people who walked during the time of Christ, particularly around the time of his death. And you see all kinds of amazing characters around the cross. You see John there with the mother of Jesus Christ. You see the centurion standing there. You see scribes and Pharisees coming around. You see all the thieves on either side of the cross. This colorful picture of what takes place. So what we're gonna do for the next month is take you back and try to get a glimpse of the cross and the love of God and the forgiveness of God and the grace of God and the power of a cross, maybe in a new and fresh way like you have never seen before. So let's stand together. Let's read our text today, Luke 23, and we'll start with verse number 44. And it was about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. So this is about 12 noon until three o'clock in the afternoon. For the sun had stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he had said this, he breathed his last. The centurion, everybody say centurion. Seeing what had happened, praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. Let us pray. Father, we love you so much. I thank you, God, as we Walk back in time today, I pray that you will give us fresh eyes, fresh understanding, and that your spirit will do in a deep internal work in our hearts and lives, we pray in Jesus' holy, mighty name, amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Let me give you a little background first. We're now in Jerusalem. We're in the Judean area of the Roman Empire. Now, Rome is an empire that is spread through the Caesars, Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar, and now it's under the reign of Tiberius Caesar, all over the kind of the Europe and the whole Roman Empire. It becomes massive. And one of the outskirts of the Roman Empire is an area called Palestine or Judea. And uh, it is there in Jerusalem. And because it is a Roman garrison, there are soldiers all around the city. They are the police state. It's a police state, so soldiers are there. They got their weapons, and they march through the cities, and their presence is very real and very much felt. And wherever you have soldiers, you also have centurions. Centurions are the soldiers over 100. So these are commanders. These are guys in authorities. These are the best of the best, the brightest of the brightest. These are the ones who made it to the top of the class, and now they're leading 100 other soldiers. And they carry out the duties of the governor in charge. In this case, it is Pontius Pilate in the area of Jerusalem. And his armies are there to do his bidding. And they would carry out the executions. They would run the affairs of the city. They made sure peace was kept. And under any circumstances, no revolts would rise up against the powerful, mighty nation of Rome. The centurion had a very close perspective of the cross. 
And today we're going to go back and we're going to look at what happened, what he might have been thinking, what he might have been feeling as he watched and witnessed from a very, very close perspective what happened that day on Calvary. First thing you got to understand about this uh, centurion is he is a man under authority. He had a complete understanding of what authority is all about. You don't get to become a centurion by not understanding Roman protocol and Roman authority. Everything is by the book, everything is by the letter of the law, and you carry out the commands without question, without thought. You do what your commanding officer tells you to do. He's stationed in Judea, probably not his favorite place to go. Uh, I just saw somebody in the early service in the Welcome Center, and they were in the Navy, and they're just now being stationed here in the Navy. And I talked to him and said, well, where, where was your last duty station? He said, Hawaii. I said, that's not a bad deal. Be stationed in Hawaii. Judea, Jerusalem, was not like Hawaii. It was probably a, a place that he may not have wanted to go, and yet he's there as a man under orders and under authority. We actually see the mention of three different centurions in the New Testament. And I say they are different because, first of all, there's a lot of soldiers around and there's a lot of centurions all over the place, and so there's no reason to assume these are the same people. But more than that, they are from different regions. And so you're gonna see a centurion in Matthew chapter eight. We'll read about him in a minute. He's from Capernaum. Capernaum is in the north. Capernaum is in Galilee. And then you have this Samaria in between and Jerusalem all all the way down in the bottom of Israel. And so it's not the same guy. The other centurion you see is found in the book of Acts, chapter 10. And you have a centurion who is living in Caesarea by the sea, which is also a mighty uh, city that King Herod had built. And he is living there and he sends for Peter, remember? And now Pentecost is gonna come to the Gentiles and he's gonna come to his house and get saved and his entire family. This is not that centurion. We simply know him as a centurion who stood by the cross. And he makes this one powerful announcement about who Jesus Christ was. They understood authority. They knew it very, very well. Now I want you to turn back. Let's look at Matthew 8. And this is the story of another man, but you're going to get a sense of what authority is all about and how it relates to us today. Matthew chapter 8. Look, if you would, at verse number 5. And when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, asking for help. And the Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said, I will go and I will heal him. And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. Just say the word. I like that phrase. Just say, let's say that together. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself, listen to this, am a man under authority. In other words, I've got higher Roman officers over me. I've got Pontius Pilate over me, I've got Caesar Augustus over me, and so I've got these Caesars over me, I get them all confused, but anyway, a Caesar over me. He says, I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. So I've got 100 guys I'm in charge of. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. He has a complete understanding of authority, and if you have authority, you don't have to do the job yourself. You just tell somebody else go do it. Hey, go do this, 
take care of this, do that, and they go and they simply do it. Now he comes in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's describing the authority he has, and he says to Jesus, he recognizes a higher spiritual authority that resided in Jesus Christ. He'd heard about his miracles, seen his life, watched him, and he says, I'm under authority, but you have something far greater. It's a spiritual authority. And he says, all you have to do, you don't have to come to where my servant is. All you gotta do is speak the word, and my servant will be healed. Because you have authority, all authority. Jesus would later say in Matthew 28, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. So he operates out of spiritual authority in power and might and signs and wonders. It's through spiritual authority. Now look at what Jesus says to that statement. And when Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found faith in anyone in Israel with such, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. The centurion describes what he sees as spiritual authority. Jesus Christ defines the same thing as great faith. Now here's the point I wanna make to you. There is a very close link between spiritual authority and faith. We know the classical definition of faith from Hebrews, now faith is the substance of things not seen, the evidence of things hoped for, but in his identification of just say the word and it'll be done, just operate out of spiritual authority, there is a link between spiritual authority and faith. And when you begin to understand all the authority and power and might that God has, when you begin to understand that if God says it in his word, it is true, it is yea and amen, then you can begin to operate in faith because you understand the spiritual authority of God Almighty. Just say the word. And for us today, do we believe God's word or not? Are we gonna operate in doubt and fear or are we gonna operate in faith? Are we gonna begin to move as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ in spiritual authority? In spiritual warfare or not? It's a connection between spiritual authority and the Bible says great faith. Do we follow Jesus Christ? Do we, when God tells us to do something, do we just do it? Do we say, God, I'm yours? Whatever you want me to do, whatever you say, whatever you call me to, are we under authority, the divine authority of God, or are we trying to still be in charge and call our own shots and make our own plans and do our own thing? When we pray, do we pray to one who has ultimate authority and command uh, and, 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 and listen to him speak into our lives and believe God for answers when we go to him? Just say the word. Just say the word, it'll be done. The centurion at the cross is a man under authority and also has authority. And he's there under orders. He's there because Pilate says, go and crucify this man. Now I want to talk to you just a few moments about crucifixion. I think to understand what the centurion saw, what he's feeling, you've got to understand a little bit about the extreme torture an execution called crucifixion. It was originally designed by the Persians, perfected by the Romans, and had been used for some centuries now. And so what they would do, and it's in the case of Jesus Christ, it wasn't in the case of every man they crucified, but at least in the case of Christ. And you get the idea that Pontius Pilate wants to have him beaten first, because he's hoping when they drag Jesus out, he's a, a bloody mess from being whipped and scourged that maybe they'll have mercy on him and let him go. Because I think in the heart of hearts, Pilate knew that this was an innocent man. And he didn't want to see an innocent man 
killed and crucified. And so they take him and they would tie them, they would attach them with lashes, with leather around what is known as a whipping post. And we got to see one of those when we were in over, over in Israel just a couple of weeks ago in the city of Corinth. They had, a, they had excavated an old whipping post that was there. They even had the, the marks in the place where they, the straps were, were tied to. They would take them, and what they used was a cat of nine tails. Now, a cat of nine tails was a leather, a leather whip, but it, it broke into nine different, different uh, leather straps that would come off the end of it. So a flagellum, and they would take that and they would put in the end of each one of those little straps either a piece of lead or bone fragments. And so that literally when they came across the back of the victim and they pulled it back, every time they pulled it back, those stones and rocks would wrap around the body of the person and rip their flesh wide open. It was so agonizing. Now the Jews had a law that you couldn't beat a person 40 times. It had to be 40 minus one because that was the number of completion. And so in their minds, 39 whippings was the most a person could get. But the Romans had no such law. They didn't follow those laws. So they were skilled, those who would do the whipping and the beating were skilled at whipping them to the point of bringing them almost to death but not killing them at the whipping post. And their back and their body and their sides would be so laid open that you could see the muscles and you could see the tendons and you could see the nerves and blood would be flowing out profusely and even internal organs, they would be so opened up through the whipping itself. Incredible, incredible pain. John 19 says after they beat him and they took him, they put a robe on his back and uh, they made a crown made up of thorns. And they took that crown and they pressed it down on the brow of Jesus Christ. And these are long thorns and the, the head, the forehead, there's a lot of nerve endings there. So it's a very, very uh, painful place. And you know if you've ever bumped and cut your head, you just bleed like crazy. I mean, there's more blood that comes right out of here than anywhere. You can imagine taking thorns and pressing it down on the brow of Jesus Christ. It's interesting that in the Garden of Eden, the first time you see the mention of thorns is after Adam and Eve fell and turned away in sin and, and the curse came upon the earth and he said you will work what by the sweat of your brow and the earth will give forth thorns doesn't the bible say jesus became a curse for us he took our curse our sin upon himself and it's all symbolized right there in that crown of thorns they forced the person who was being executed to carry their own cross and so you had to carry the implement of death up to where you were gonna be crucified to, outside the gates of the city. All the executions were outside the gates of the city. And so they carried their cross, but he had lost so much blood through, the, through the, flag, the, the whipping, the beating that he endured that uh, he fell under the weight of the cross. And they conscripted Simon the Cyrene to come, you carry his cross, and he took it the rest of the way. And they would put on top of the cross the sign, a sign on every cross that the uh, that showed what the criminal did because the Romans wanted every execution to be a message. If you try this or if you do this, this is what happens to you. And so it became a great deterrent. No one wanted to ever go through crucifixion. 
A lot of people, there's a lot of debate, and we had an amazing trip, as I've said before, but there's a couple of places where they think Jesus Christ might have been crucified. One is uh, now inside the city gates, but at that time it would have been outside the gates of this city because that city's been destroyed many times and rebuilt and walls have been added all around the perimeter. And so this is an area where they found some stone and rock formations, and they feel like maybe Christ could have been crucified here. But like we tend to do, we want to build shrines over everything we see, and so about 300-something A.D., they came and began to build shrines over it, and now sits the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and they line up for hours to see where Christ may have been crucified. There's an archaeologist, a British archaeologist, his last name is Gordon. He uh, found a rock, and so when you read a description of the death of Christ, he talks about the place of the skull, or, or Skull Hill. And that this is probably, this, the Bible identifies Skull Hill or Calvary or Golgotha as the place where Christ was crucified. And so go ahead and show that picture. This is taken from uh, about 100, after he found the place, Gordon found the place. This is what, and you can see the two eyes there and the nose and the rock formation. And so, and there he found a garden tomb right below where that cross would have been. And so they, that's why he believes this is may, maybe more accurately the place where Christ was crucified. But what we've got to understand in this day and age, we sing a beautiful song, and it's lovely to sing about, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. What they did is they executed people down on the street below because people passing by would see that cross, and they could get right up close to the criminals, and they could spit in their face, and they could say whatever they wanted to, and they could blaspheme him, and they could... Uh, mock him and make fun of him and just say, if you're the son of God, get off that cross. What a way for the king of the Jews to die. And you can just hear all the taunts and the Bible just kind of gives us a snapshot of what I made. Show us the next picture. This is what it looks like today. And uh, you still see the nose fell off of the mountain, but you can still see where the eyes would be. And, And right below that, there's a bus station today, and there's all kinds of trash and litter and stuff and uh, bottles and wine bottles and things of that nature. It's amazing that that's the people Jesus Christ came to save, us, people like us who have all kinds of problems and things like that. So he's right down there on the city streets as they mock him and throw insults at him. To crucify somebody, they would lay them down on the cross and uh, they put nails, and the Bible says in the palms of the hand, but this whole area from here on up was considered the palm of the hand, and so most likely the nails went right here between these two bones. And you can see, you look at your hand and see all the veins and nerves running through there. That's where they drove the hand because there, the weight would be there to support the weight of the body. And they put but a nail, one nail in their feet, and they would put their feet in a very awkward, painful position and drive it through here and into the other foot and right on into the wooden cross. And then they would take that cross, and you can imagine when they're driving the nails, the excruciating pain, I get a splinter and I go nuts. Can you imagine? A nail, spike, driven through his hand, the pain that shot up his arms, the pain that shot up his legs. And then they would take that cross and stand it up and it would fall into a hole with a thud and his body would just kind of, you can imagine all the weight coming down on those hands and his legs and his legs at a contorted position. 
person died on the cross, the cause of death was that air could be brought into the lungs, but it could not be exhaled. And so in order to exhale, you would have to push off that nail to exhale. Other, uh, otherwise, your body begins, your heart begins to fill with carbon dioxide and, uh, and your lungs and your blood system and all that, and it begins to attack that part of the body. It's interesting, uh, Psalm 22 and verse 16 says, they pierce my hands and my feet. A thousand plus years before Jesus Christ is ever crucified, it is written, they would pierce my hands and my feet. Jesus experienced hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joints cramping, intermittent, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain where the tissue is torn. And, and here's what you gotta mind. His, his back is totally laid open. It is raw, it is bare, it is sensitive, it's still hurting. And every time he has to get air, he's pushing up on that wooden cross. Now that wooden cross wasn't like our beautiful ornate crosses today that are uh, stained in polyurethane with three coats, so it's real slick. It is a rough wooden timber with splinters, and every time he pushes off, those splinters in that cross is digging into the heart of his back. All that pain. Then another agony begins, a terrible crushing pain deep in his chest because what happens is around the chest area, fluid begins to accumulate. Uh, my dad, he, passed, he died with cancer, and it was, it was lung cancer. Never smoked a day in his life, but it was on the outside of the lungs, and his lungs kept filling up with fluid. They couldn't keep the fluid off his lungs, and so to alleviate the pain, he would have to go in, and they would drain the fluid off in this area around his chest and around his heart. And so fluid begins to accumulate around his heart and press on the heart itself. Psalm 22 again in verse 14 says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. And my heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. What a description of the agony of Calvary. With one last surge of strength, Jesus once again presses up to his feet, presses up to on his heels, on that nail to straighten out his legs. He takes a deeper breath and he utters the seventh and last of cries. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Centurion, who's been following orders, who carried out the death sentence, watches and sees this entire scene of Christ being crucified. Now listen to me, if it had been us and we know Jesus and we know what he wants, we'd be bawling and squalling, we'd be crying, we'd be weeping, we'd be hugging the base of that cross, we'd be, the blood would be all over us from getting down around the cross. This is a rugged soldier. This soldier had probably already done over 100 plus executions while he's in Jerusalem. In fact, they executed three that day. There was one on either side. So he's used to killing people. He's used to seeing the sentence carried out. But there's something about this man that is different than anybody else he ever killed along the way. Something different enough that from his new perspective, he would say, surely this is the Son of God. He never says that about anybody else but about this man. What would cause this rough centurion to cry that out? I'm gonna give you three things very quickly. First of all, he saw Jesus suffer. And, and, and we gotta understand, he saw a lot of people suffer along the way. But listen to Matthew 27, 34. And they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. Now what is wine and gall mixed together? It is a sedative. It is given to victims to help numb the pain or dull the pain. 
But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. Listen, everybody else who's given that wine to drink is going to drink that as much as they can to help that searing pain in their back, in their legs, in their arms, in their body. But he refused to drink it because he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane earlier that day, earlier the night before, and, and he says, Lord, if it would be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He drank all the cup of the wrath of God, every single bit of it, to take my sins and your sins upon himself. Amen. The third thing the centurion witnesses on this occasion, unlike any others, there's some, there's some amazing, miraculous signs going on. In, in Matthew, I, we won't turn and read it now, Matthew 27, 51, he says the earthquake. There was an earthquake. And so you can imagine at the cross, the earth starts shaking up. He hasn't had too many crucifixions where there's been earthquakes going on at the same time. And then another telling sign in Luke 23 and 45, it says the last three hours from noon till three in the afternoon, the brightest, hottest time of the day, darkness covered the face of the earth. What is, what is God doing? He's taking his hand. He's blocking out the light of the sun so that his son would be covered in that veil in his shame and agony on Calvary. I think it was August 21st last year. This whole area was going crazy because there was going to be an eclipse of the sun. And we got our glasses and we got excited and my staff talked me into getting off in the afternoon so they could go run and follow an eclipse around and so, you know, like get a hat, whatever it takes to get a day off. And so, and so the eclipse is coming and uh, two minutes and 40 seconds, it was dark for three hours. This is no eclipse. This is God. This is God covering his son. And then the third thing, I think probably the most telling and powerful thing that changes his perspective is because he hears something. He hears Jesus Christ say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He has watched his soldiers beat him. He has watched the nails be put in. He's seen him mocked and people come against him and spit on him. Unlike any other criminal in the past, they abuse Jesus Christ. And he never opens up his mouth and he never utters a word in his defense. And finally, when he begins to speak and one of these seven last sayings of Jesus come forth on the cross, it is, Father, forgive them. Forgive the scribes. Forgive the Sadducees. Forgive Pontius Pilate. Forgive these soldiers. Forgive this centurion. Listen to me. When you get a real glimpse of what the cross is all about, it will radically transform and change your perspective. You will never see it in the same way again. For to understand the cross and the power of the cross is to understand the love and mercy and grace and forgiveness of God. Jesus didn't deserve to be there. We did. He hears these words, Father, Father, forgive them. 
And through what he observed up close and personal, his perspective changes. And now he is no longer an outsider, a foreigner, merely a Roman citizen, not just a Roman soldier, but now he is a child of God, redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, forgiven and cleansed, every sin taken away. Now his life is forever going to be changed by that encounter of Calvary. Sometimes we, we, we're like the centurion. We go through the motions, and man, every day it's taking orders, and my boss tells me what to do, and I come home and my wife tells me what to do. No, that's not true. I just <laughs> threw that in there. But we're taking orders, and we go through the motions, the same old, same old, another day, another execution, another day stuck here in Jerusalem, another day on post, another day trying to corral my soldiers and get them to line up, another day at the office. And, and, and yet, when we have encountered the cross, it ought to change the entire way we live our life. Our life should never, ever be the same again. So now I have a higher calling. I don't just work for General Electric or Volvo or Boeing anymore. Now I'm working for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And everything about my life is to tell people and testify to who Jesus Christ is and what he did for me. Hallelujah. Because he had a change of perspective, his life would no longer be life as usual. It's the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is going to come at 6 o'clock that day. We got to Friday night. We got to go to the Wailing Wall. And we saw the Jews, and they're, they're, some of them are put, butting their head up against that wall, the Western Wall. Others are putting notes in there. They're chanting. They're crying. And there's others who are celebrating and dancing. You see some Jews, it was kind of a joyous celebration. It's kind of like their Sunday for us. We celebrate and we come and we talk and we visit and we sing and we clap and, and we do those kinds of things. And it was their Sabbat, their Sabbath day. But, but they didn't want the bodies hanging on the cross as the Sabbath was approaching. And so they got a hold of Pontius Pilate and they said, Let's get the bodies off the crosses before Shabbat, Shabbat starts. And so he sends the centurion, the centurion, the soldier comes, they bring the message, and the message goes like this, break their legs. You say, Pastor, why break their legs? Because obviously if their legs are broken, they can no longer push off. They can no longer get air or expel air out of their lungs, and they will suffocate within a matter of a few minutes. The blood's already been accumulating. The water's accumulating around their lungs and they no longer have the capability to get air and exhale and suffocation kills them. They got to the first cross. They got to the thief that had been there and they, they took their hammer or their sword or whatever they used to break the legs of that, 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 that convict and they break his legs and he dies very shortly after that. And they go to the other cross on the other side. And when they get there, they too break his legs so they can get him down and off the cross. But when they get to Jesus Christ, and maybe they're getting ready to just swing the blow, and they say, wait a minute, stop, stop, everything, hold everything. He's already dead. He's already died. It was possible to hang on a cross and stay there for three days. Some, some could survive up to three days on the cross. But Jesus Christ, remember, was first beaten. He was first whipped, unlike probably the other two. And he had lost so much blood by this time that he was already dead. And one of the soldiers takes a spear, probably at the centurion's order, and says, double check, 
make sure he's really dead. We think he's dead, he may be dead, and they take a spear and they run it up and it goes in between his rib cage right into his heart. In the Bible, John describes it in John chapter 19 very graphically. He says, and out of his side flowed blood and water. All that serum that is located around his heart and his chest comes out mixed with all the blood and pours out of his side. John says in verse 37, 36 and 37, it fulfilled the prophecy. First of all, a couple prophecies. Psalm 34, 20. He keepeth all his bones, not one of them will be broken. It is amazing. Though the other two legs were broken, the body of Jesus Christ was never a broken bone fulfilling prophecy down to the very minutest detail. And later, Zechariah would write, one of the latter prophets, he would say in Zechariah 12, 10, they shall look upon me whom they pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. Wow, what a fulfillment of prophecy. Listen to me, if you're a student of the word of God and you have studied the Old Testament at all, I can't understand how anybody could not see how God's supernatural hand is in the entire plan for his son and for our salvation and for humanity is every detail of prophecy is fulfilled down to the minutest detail. It's amazing about his birth and his death all over the word of God. Later, John would write, and I'm sure that vision of the blood and water pouring out would stay with John the rest of his days because he too was also right there at the foot of the cross. And he writes in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 6, and this is the one who came by blood and water, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and the blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies. And the Spirit was there testifying to this centurion. And the Spirit was there testifying to John and everybody else who witnessed that blood and water come out because the Spirit is the truth. There was a moment in this man's life when he had to encounter with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that changed his perspective forever. He would never, ever be the same again. He would never go through life the same again. It would not be the same old, same old. We don't know a lot about it. This is the first time we read about this centurion. He may have been a good man. He may have been a great daddy. He may have had a lot of wonderful kids. We know he was a company man. He followed the orders right down to the minutest detail. He's probably a wonderful guy, but it would never, ever be the same again because now he had an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he came face to face with Calvary. He witnessed firsthand the love and the forgiveness of God. I wonder if our perspective of Jesus determines how we live our lives. How are we living our life? Are we understand spiritual authority? Do we understand when God says go, we go? When he says come, we come. When he says do this and we do it. Do we, do we have that understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower and live for him and, 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 and just give everything for Jesus? If we've had an encounter with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, listen, life can no longer be same old, same old. I am called by God. I'm redeemed by God. I'm saved by God for a higher purpose in life, and that's to glorify him with my word and my speech and my actions and be a witness for him of what we too have seen at the cross. Have you had an encounter with Jesus Christ? 
Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org.